0: Yep, there's Mika. (laughs) She decided to hop up and I thought I'd show you the cat briefly. So we're getting ready to do the stream today. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike Winger and this is 20 Questions with me. And uh, I'm taking your questions live from the live chat here on YouTube and I will give you the best answers I can trying to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. Uh, One new addition recently in the past few weeks is we have our question counter back there so you can see what question we're on. Technically, I'm on question zero at the moment, just introducing everything. And my cat is now deciding whether she's going to ruin the live stream. Um, So yeah, thanks for joining us. The first question we're we're tackling today is actually a very challenging one. I even reached out to a few friends Mm -hmm. to get their advice on how they would answer this question. Let me read it to you. This is from uh, Shannon D, who says, I'm in a master's program with Liberty University for clinical mental health. Um, let's see. Uh, sorry, I just lost my spot. For clinical mental health counseling. During our training, we were asked how we would handle certain difficult situations, such as if a LGBTQ couple would request help in strengthening their relationship, or request help advocating for adoption rights, or advocating for trans people. Can you? Please give some biblical principles to follow to help me counsel these people in a caring way without condoning unbiblical behavior. Now, I'm going to first admit the limitations of what I'm saying, but then I want to say that this is not a non-answer. Here's the limitations. I don't have your scenario, and so I'm not like living the experience of trying to navigate the issues that you're trying to navigate, Shannon. And I guess you don't have it yet, but you will in the future. And so I've, I've always done counseling from the perspective of an overtly Christian environment. And um, I've never had the situation that you might be confronted with. So th- you need to take what I'm saying with a bit of a grain of salt. That being said, um, there are some biblical principles that we can apply to this very tough situation. And the first thing I want to acknowledge is this. If you right now, you're listening and you're hoping for an answer that will make everyone happy, that doesn't exist. There just isn't an answer that's going to make everybody happy on this particular topic. I'm not going to be able to give an answer that's going to make uh, an LGBTQ couple happy with my answer. Most likely. I mean, some of them would be, I mean, everybody's individuals here. But no, they're not going to be happy. And if I made them happy, then people who are Bible-believing Christians aren't going to probably be happy with the answer. I also want to say this. Um, What we have to avoid is, in my opinion... The trap of thinking that there's this dichotomy between caring and loving for people, caring for and loving people versus um, telling them that something they're doing is sinful and that that is somehow like a dichotomy. Now, hear me out. This, This should be elementary school reasoning for us, especially as Christians. But this is this is behind as I talk to people about this type of type of an issue this is behind a lot of their confusion. They really do think it's unloving and judgmental and rude or cruel to just tell somebody the lifestyle you're choosing to live is ungodly. But I'm going to suggest that that is a loving and caring and kind and gracious and God honoring thing to do many times doesn't mean you always do it or you do it with a careless attitude. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about you're shaking your fist while you're telling them they need to repent. No, repentance is is a kind word. Biblically speaking, it's a word that invites people to change their lives, to be in line with the will of God, to bring them into the love of God, into the grace of God. But it does involve changing lives, changing your, especially changing your attitude about your lifestyle. Now, let me share with you a couple of verses that I think Become bedrock for us on this issue. One is Isaiah five twenty, which says, "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter." Um, you know, currently in our culture, we're dealing with things on LGBTQ plus issues, and these are different issues; they're not all the same issue, but they do have similar a similar common background, which is where the society is trying to tell us—not all society, but a lot of societies trying to tell us to approve of behaviors that the Bible. Would, would make clear God does not approve of. Or in other words, to call something good, which is actually evil. There we go. What are those who call evil good? Now, this is a specific woe that applied to Isaiah in their time, but, but the application applies to us as well. If I say that homosexual sexual behaviors are okay, or even good, or something someone should pursue, then I am woe to me. Woe to me and woe to the people I lead astray. Proverbs talks about this as well. They suggest that um, there is the person who lies and waits for his neighbor's blood or who, who pushes his neighbor to do wicked things. The book of Proverbs alludes to this as well. And this is the danger of being the counselor who's asked to help a, let's say, a lesbian couple to try to better their relationship. If it's a romantic relationship, then it's a relationship that's inherently sinful because of the nature of the relationship. And to say, hey, help me do this better, It does, it seems to me that it requires me to, in some sense, approve of the relationship or to call something good that's evil. Now, woe to the couple because they're doing things in rebellion to God. Woe to me because I'm encouraging them in that rebellion at that point. Now, this is where the world pushes back and says, Mike, you're not loving them. And this is where I say, you're wrong. Like, you're just wrong about this. You, you have love confusion here, which is something very common, especially amongst teenagers, but it's in the world as well. It's, I'm confused about the nature of love, about what it means to love people. I've, I, I think approving of what someone's doing is therefore loving them. But this is a, a rule the world holds inconsistently because when they go to the Christian, who says, I believe the Bible, I believe the word of God, I believe in Jesus, I believe that God has a, a plan for our lives as far as like in our own sexual design. The world doesn't love you in the sense of approving of that. They, they condemn that, they they vilify that. So they're, even their own rule that to love someone is to approve of what they're doing doesn't apply to Christians, doesn't apply to anybody except the people they want it to apply to, which is because they're just calling evil good and good evil. That's what's really happening in this scenario. So I think the rule, now. how do I handle this if you're a counselor, the, the rule is this, you may give them counsel on many things. You may even be able to bring in a, a, a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, whatever, and you give them advice and counsel, I'm okay with that, I'm cool with that, but I can't do anything that means that I'm calling evil good and good evil. So if that counsel requires me to approve of and help you to, in the performance of sinful behaviors, I can't do that as a Christian. I don't care what counseling agreements you might try to be signing, what policies or government laws there might be to try, uh, to avoid discrimination and stuff like that. This is about my faithfulness to Christ and my obedience to Jesus trumps my employer and it trumps government every day, all day long. I cannot call good what is evil. And so I want to help... Um, Somebody say, say a, a lesbian comes to me and they go, Mike, I want anger management classes. Now I've done anger management. Okay. This, but in a, in a Christian context. So it was understood when they entered the room that before, you know, our, our like intro entry interview was to say, Hey, this is a Christian counseling thing. I'm going to give you counsel from scripture. This doesn't, this doesn't mean you have to be a Christian to, to hear the counsel. But it means that I'm going to give you the Christian advice. I'm going to give you biblical advice. And most of the time, even non-Christians I talked to were actually happy about that. Every once in a while, someone would just say, okay, I'll go somewhere else. And then that solved the problem. But I don't know how a Christian can be a counselor who doesn't do that. Who doesn't say, if I'm going to counsel you, which means I'm going to try to help you improve your life, help you navigate your life better right? I'm going to, I'm trying to help shape the way you think about your life, about what your conscience says about what's right and wrong. I'm going to help you in all these areas. Let's, let's not lie and pretend counseling doesn't do that. It does that. It definitely does that. How can I not do it from a biblical perspective? I I have to, I'm a Christian. This is, this is the nature of who I am. That might mean that the counseling job is, is eventually off limits, or at least in some scenarios to a believer the official counseling position, at least at a secular institution. It might mean that we just hold our ground and we get called into court and then we go through the court battles and we get like ADF or whoever to try to defend us in court. I think as Christians, you have to toe the line of gospel truth. The gospel sends a message out that all the world has to repent and trust in Christ. And if my job requires me to tell people, you don't have to repent, you don't need to trust in Christ. Let me just help you be the best you, you can be with your version of how you want to live, calling evil, what you call evil, calling good, what you call good, regardless of the truth. Then how can I do that job as a Christian? How am I the light of the world? This is a job all Christians have to call all people to repent and trust in Christ. So I know this is not the advice that some are going to want on this, on this issue. Um, And it's not going, like I said, It won't make everybody happy, but I think it's the consistent biblical truth. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That includes homosexuality. That includes lesbian behaviors, and I'm talking about the actions, not not proclivities. Okay, you you can't uh, you you don't want to confuse the two, right? I'm not talking about identity. We're talking about behaviors. That's the Christian view on things. I'm going to approach this as a, as a Christian, and so yeah, I, I'm I'm going to suggest you you should turn from that behavior. Why? Because it's bad for you. Because it's bad for your relationship with God. Because it's bad for your relationship with that person. And if I'm going to counsel you, I've got to give you the right advice. I got to give you true advice and good counsel. And call it good, what's good, and evil, what's evil, and move forward with that. So I, I hope that helps, Shannon. I know that you asked some other things in there as well. Like, what about if, if someone's you know, LGBT, they're asking me to advocate for adoption rights, advocate for trans people. I don't understand, I'm just going to speak honestly, I don't understand how anyone can ask you to advocate for them. That's strange, right? Like, What if what if somebody came to me and they're like, Mike, you need to advocate for the porn industry and for um, for the legalization of prostitution. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to approve of your behaviors as a way of getting you to think I'm a nice person. I'm not going to do that. God doesn't do that. Jesus didn't never did that. He was never that version of nice. The apostles were never that version of nice. They went out and they told people to repent. The first message in Jesus's lips in the gospels, repent. The first message in on Peter's mouth in the book of Acts, repent. The The message that Paul said he preached to all men everywhere was repent. Now, I think that's a beautiful word, a hopeful word, a word that promises forgiveness, a word that promises transformation, a word that promises relationship with God, but it's a requirement and we can't get past it. I, uh, I hope that that helps you. Um, some will, will start dancing on this issue. As a Christian, you cannot compromise here. You should not compromise here. I can't help people do sinful things. I don't care what job I have. I can't assist others in wickedness. In an overt way, or or try to help shape their mind against the conscience God gave them to think that evil is good and good is evil. Number two is from Stephen Singleton, who says, "Any advice on how to help a brother in Christ who's also a preacher not leave his marriage because he's miserable and he claims God doesn't want him miserable?" Um, Stephen, um, so let's 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 work through this here. What's his justification? He's he's in a marriage. Uh, he's a preacher. Okay, to me, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean much (laughs) coming from a preacher. um, Being a a teacher, a Bible teacher does not change your character one bit. Right. It's just the topic you discuss. Now, hopefully you're godly, hopefully all that. But it. Yeah, pastors are assumed or, or Bible teachers are assumed to be more spiritual. And this is not the case. Like you might think I'm spiritual because I talk about godly things. But the truth is that my life off of this camera, that's where you would never even know. Right, you could guess, but you wouldn't really know. And um, yeah, on, on a side note, I'll mention this. I, I had a, f- a friend who was interested in a man who was in ministry and she had said, you know, I'm romantically interested in, and they were kind of thinking about a relationship together, and she had said, I am I'm, I'm I'm kind of you know, thinking about a relationship with this person long term and I love their teaching. I love their teaching, but I don't know about like if he's really good husband material and the advice that i had given her at the time which i think is good advice is to say hey you're not marrying the teacher you're not marrying the pastor you're marrying the man you're marrying the way he is when he's not teaching you're marrying him when he's wakes up on a saturday morning and he's tired he's irritated frustrated or whatever like this is the guy you're marrying and um yeah uh, anyway just just a side note there the fact that he's a preacher is irrelevant to me but it's interesting um so you you want to tell him not to leave his marriage and his, his justification for leaving his marriage is he's miserable and he claims God doesn't want him miserable. So let's, let's tackle this as Christians. Now, this concept of, well, I'm miserable. God wouldn't want me miserable. God would want me happy. Therefore I can justify this behavior that will, I think, bring me happiness. Um, Where's the biblical warrant for that attitude, for that? This is a worldview issue as a Christian. The world, right now, there is, speaking of counseling issues, the world does sometimes like to suggest you deserve to be happy. You ought to be happy. If you're not happy, then it's okay to do the things that make you happy, right? In fact, it's a moral good to do the things that make you happy. But yet, when God's prophets go to the people of God, he often asks them to weep and mourn, to cry, to cry. Um, you know, in James, he's actually calling the church to repentance and he tells them to weep and wail and mourn. Um, let me see if I can find this passage for you guys. James 4.9. Um, yeah, this is, oh yeah. Okay. Let me read to you from James 4. This is such a good application for us for this question. Does God want me happy? Is that justification for me divorcing? Obviously the answer is no. The answer is no. The person's very selfish and unbiblical. This is uh, a very dangerous mentality to have. But we can all fall into it very easily. I can fall into it too. I'm just not happy. And that, to me, justifies my behaviors. So he reads here and says, um, uh, What causes fights among you? Maybe him and his wife fight a lot. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Like, there's things you want that you're not getting, so this is causing these fights potentially in your relationship you do not have because you do not ask you're not looking to god to be the source of what you need you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions oh wait a minute what there are motives i have that i that i think would make me happy i want this thing and i think it'll make me happy that's actually evil and that i have to die to that's a biblical perspective like i have to die to myself i gotta take up my cross and follow jesus right jesus on the cross he's not like happy i mean imagine jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Lord, I, 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 you know, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. But actually, now that I think about it, the cross is not going to make me happy. I, I don't think I'm going to take up this cross. And you know what? Hey, disciples, I know I told you before to take up the cross and follow me, but, but now I'm going to add one thing. If it makes you happy to take up the cross and follow me, right and wrong cannot be filtered through our happiness, our happiness is very weird and and our happiness is subject as it says in James to these weird passions we have that are sometimes bad sometimes evil sometimes we get we get happiness in doing wrong you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god that's the real issue is is this how is this uh, in my relationship with god what's going on here god you know says let let them not be separated right that you know what god joined together let not man separate that that's the general rule divorce and almost Most cases, the vast majority of cases, divorce is a wrong, immoral thing. God's not pleased with it. Is it making God happy is what I really want to ask. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, now here's the good news. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now James gives them the counsel. This is why I went to this passage. James gives them the advice, and he doesn't say anything about happiness here. He's like, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the counsel to the person who is being driven by their own desires for, let's just call it happiness, towards sinful behaviors. And the counsel that James gives them is you you need to be brokenhearted. You need to get sad about the sin you're doing. Sad about the rebellion you have against God, and not just sad because you don't think life is treating you fair. Um, I know those are hard words, but... Um, I'll tell this story. I've told it before, but I think it's a, a helpful story. And the story goes like this, that a man went to his counselor and he says to his Christian counselor, a pastor of some kind. And he says, uh, pastor, uh, I'm, I'm really struggling with my wife. She's not treating me right. Um, you know, I, I just don't like the way she treats me. And the pastor says, you know, well, the Bible says to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And he says, but you don't understand. It's, it's like, it's like, she's not even my wife anymore. It's more like, she's just like, like, like a, like a sister, uh, a a neighbor. It's like, she's just some random neighbor, you know, in in my house. Like we're not even married. It's what it feels like. And he says, well, you know, you know what God says about your neighbor says, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, okay. But you don't understand pastor. You don't get it. It's worse than that. Like, I'm not making it clear to you. It's like, she's, she, it's like, she's, my enemy, okay? It's like she hates me and she wants to undermine my life and she's doing things that just drive me absolutely crazy. It's like I'm living with my enemy. And the pastor looks at him and says, you know what the Bible says about your enemies, right? <laughs> I hope you guys get the point. The call that a husband has, and I speak as a husband, okay, to love his wife is a call to love her as Christ loved the church, which is when the, when the church is not faithful to him, is hating him, is, is killing him. He is dying for her that is the kind of love we're called to emulate self-sacrificial love that when my wife wounds me the most when i feel the most betrayed or hurt this is my chance to show jesus in my attitude towards her is that easy no is it the call absolutely um your friends focused on his happiness this is loving himself more than her this is loving himself more than god he should focus first on god Next, on others, and then lastly, on himself. That, that would be my counsel that you should give to him. Let's go to maybe some of those passages. Josh Payne has a question and says A JW or Jehovah's Witness said that all the letters in the New Testament addressed to saints are for the 144,000. Examples Romans 1 7. How do I show that a saint is a believer and that the New Testament should be applied to everyone? Um. I've never heard that before. So let me, let me just digest this for a second. The, the, is it, I don't know if it's consistent JW teaching or not, because I just haven't looked into it, I guess, or maybe I've forgotten. Um, but the idea that the 144,000, every time you hear the phrase saints talked about, it's, re, it's a reference to the 144,000. So let's look at the verse that you gave us. Um, Romans 1, 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, what I think, I think most Christians are going to know off the cuff, if you just read the Bible, even casually, is that the term saint, it's not say the Roman Catholic perspective. That's not anywhere in the new Testament. Uh, and even Roman Catholics, some of them will, will acknowledge this, right? Like saint, isn't a special class of Christians, but saints are simply everybody in Christ, right? Everybody, every Christian is a saint. Um, so let's, let's just absorb that for a second that there's there's no Jehovah's witness 144,000 these are the saints okay to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our father and the lord Jesus Christ okay they're called to be saints so maybe they're supposed to try to be one of the 144,000 um and and that's what he's getting at um the, the strange thing is that you don't have any teaching about the 144,000 until the book of revelation Romans is written far earlier revelation is literally a revelation the implication let me, let me build a little case here against this view, is that the information in the book of Revelation was not known to the church prior, okay? And this is this prophecy about the 144,000 who are all Jewish, by the way. They're of the 12 tribes of Israel in the book of Revelation, um, 12,000 from each tribe, that this prophecy was not yet known at the time that Romans was written. So it's difficult to read back, right? into the mind of Paul and into the mind of the Roman Christians that they would know what the word saint means. Saint has this special meaning that hasn't even been revealed yet, but he's writing to these. It it, it doesn't work. In other words, this would be like, um, this would be like an Old Testament saint talking about the, um, the, the use of tongues in, in a, in, in the church. So like if you had Amos talking about the proper use of tongues, the way Paul does in first Corinthians, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. You'd be like, Amos wouldn't talk about that because this wasn't happening back then. That's the same thing we see with, with, uh, with um, the book of Romans. Now in 2 Corinthians 13, th- 13 we have another example of this um, use of the word saints. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for the restoration. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. All the saints greet you. Um, he's talking about where he's writing from. So he writes to Corinth and he says, the, all, the, all the saints that are with me greet you. This implies something that Paul, if the JW is right, not only does he know there's a special class of 144,000 who are the saints, who are the 144, but Paul knows which ones they are and specifically those individuals greet them. And he uses all the saints. So there's obviously a significant number of them. But it makes a lot more sense that Paul is just saying, all of the Christians around me are greeting all of you. The church here says hi to, to the church there. That's all he's doing, and he's just saying greet one another. This is this is a general greeting that he has going on there. Um, let me go to some other uh, other scriptures here. Um, Okay, um, for God is not the author of... This is uh, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-three. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now that's interesting because now the phrase churches of the saints would imply that the people who are in the churches are saints. So again, he's speaking of a term as an inclusive term. Everyone is a saint and the word saint means holy. And Paul definitely teaches that all of us are holy if we go to Ephesians 1 we're all holy in Christ, right? To, um, <laughs> I wonder if they, would, if they would limit the book of Ephesians to just a, a group of like, I don't know, a few hundred people that were alive at the time. Um, uh, but anyway, Ephesians talks about this, that God has, um, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to bound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, you might might gather together in one all things in Christ. So it's about us all being in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. It's just talking about people who believe in Jesus, right? Let's read on. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also having believed, you were sealed with the what? The Holy Spirit of promise. That's what makes us saints. We have the Holy Spirit, we're made holy, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord, Jesus, and your love for all the saints. He's just talking about your love for you believe in Jesus, you love Christians. This is what first John talks about. You believe in God. You'd really love God. You're going to love people, his children in particular, which are all saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. And then he goes on to suggest more um, that you may know what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? None of this makes any sense if you think that um, that uh, the word saint refers to 144,000. So... Um, I hope some of those things help. You could just look up the word saint in the rest of scripture and you're going to see over and over and over again. It just refers to those who are called or chosen by God, right? This is the idea. They're not the 144,000. It's really, JW teaching is so, it's so foreign to the New Testament. Uh, New creation has a question. Does modalism lead to other fallacies? If someone believes in Christ, except they don't believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each distinct, could their salvation be in jeopardy? Um, so the nature of modalism, and, and I feel like I'd want to just ponder this question for a few minutes. So I'll give you a couple thoughts off the cuff. Again, my answers aren't, uh, I'm not preparing these answers. I'm giving you hopefully some wisdom to the best of my ability. Um, but if I was to prepare all my answers, I would do one of these every two months. Um, and so we do more. But uh, but here's some thoughts, right? Modalism, um, the idea is that the, the father the Son and the Spirit are one person. The that God the Father is like one sort of way God presents Himself. And then He presents Himself as God the Son, He presents Himself as God the Spirit, but they're they're not three different persons. So modalism, that's why we use the word mode, it's like God is in different modes. So He sort of changes. Um, it's kind of like if I go and talk to my mom right now, I'm presenting myself as her son. And then I go and I talk to like my boss, I'm his employee. And then maybe I talk to my employee and I'm their boss. There's three different sort of modes, but only one person. Uh, one of the, uh, problems with this probably the biggest problem with this is this is inconsistent with what scripture clearly teaches about god so i'm definitely denying biblical teaching if i deny the personhood of the son the personhood of the spirit that that the father the son and the spirit are not the same person that there's a personhood going on there now will it lead to other heresies um i i imagine it would See, our doctrine tends to come in forms Um, what I mean by this is like, let's say you're pouring concrete and you lay out these wood, this wood frame. So you get like some two by fours and you put them together to create a frame. This is where you're going to pour the concrete. Now, if one of them is a little short, what you'll find is that the other angles are going to be off as well. So because one's short, the angle's a little greater than 90 degrees. Well, that will cause the angle on the other side, the next corner to be less than 90 degrees, which will cause the other angle to be greater. And now you have like this, this shifted form. This is what happens with doctrine. When we get one thing off, it tends to impact and affect us in other areas as well. Um, So you're going to have issues with um, uh, things like trying to suggest what is going on when Jesus is talking to the father. What is happening there, right? Like how much is Jesus actually God? Jesus seems to be a different person than the father here but if you try to take away that personhood and just then was he really god with us Uh, anyway i i think i need to spend more time on this to answer your question in more detail um maybe you should google it (laughs) um i would i would suspect modalism will lead to other heresy type things but i will say this that and i know this is going to sound weird you guys but of the wrong views to have about god modalism is like the less harmful Right? Because if you actually deny the deity of Christ, you actually deny his deity entirely, that's different. Like, I think you you are outside the gospel. Now, um, you maybe might be ignorant of who Jesus is. Maybe you've believed in Jesus. You know, he died and rose again. You're, you don't really know whether he's he's God or not because it's never occurred to you because you're just a noob Christian. I, I think that's acceptable, okay? You're just ignorant of certain theology. But to deny his deity, that's, that's much worse. And so this this would be something we see in Jehovah's Witness teaching, um, in other, other teachings as well. So that's more significant. Modalism seems like a lot of people ignorantly fall into modalism because they just don't know what words to use to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. And I would want to have grace on people who are just working through it and trying to understand it and are just kind of ignorant. And that's understandable. It can be tough to wrap your head around it. And so I try to be gracious to people on that issue. Uh, Number five, Wadawas has a question. A friend was sexually abused by her family. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, Including mother, foster family, the school priest, and her first husband. Understandably, she refuses to believe in any God. How can I witness to her? Um, Wadawas, this is a deeply personal question. And you're asking me who, who knows this much about this person, like how you can witness to her. Um, the simplicity of this is you just tell her the truth. Like you just tell her the truth. That's it. You just, you tell her the truth. That's how you witness to people. You tell them like, here's the gospel. That's it. Like we don't need to overcomplicate it here. Now, what if you're, you're going to suggest she responds with anger and she says, well, why did God allow that to happen to me? I think you can just, then you'd be very honest and humble about it. I don't know. I don't know, but I know this that that's what wicked people did and they need to repent and they'll stand before God and be judged. But you will too. And you need Jesus Christ. Like I'm going to just give you the simple old school gospel of Jesus Christ. Like I don't, um, I don't feel that to present the gospel, to witness the simple gospel truth, I have to like explain why people have suffered in their lives. And if you take that burden on yourself, like I have to explain your suffering to you before I can tell you about Jesus and how he's the solution to that suffering that's going to be a burden that you're probably not going to be able to shoulder because what you're really trying to do is bring people to an emotional place. You're emotionally overwhelmed with what you've gone through. I'm supposed to fix that before you come to Christ. Like, dude, you need to come to Jesus. That is the fix. That is the solution. This is the help that you need. Um, I think that, that we, you just witnessed to them and you don't worry too much about fixing everything they think about God or fixing everything they think about their past Um, yeah, God would never do that. God hates that. God forbids that. God judges those who do it. These are good truths that I would want to share with them, but then I would just tell them the gospel. Uh, No more questions, you guys. Just before we go to number six, we're we're full up on questions. I really hope that these things are helpful. I'm touching on things that I know are deeply emotional, but sometimes when when we're touching things that are deeply emotional, what we don't need is a deeply emotional like cry fest in response to that. Sometimes what we need is clear thinking because emotions can override. I guess I'm still on five. Let me go back to that. Emotions can override our clear thinking. And what we need when we're feeling very emotional about things we've gone through, others have gone through, what we're going through, how we're feeling about stuff, is we need that clarity to tell us how to guide our emotions, how to look through our emotions and say, this I approve of, that I reject. I am understandably angry about the past. I I I can't stand what they did. I've been hurt by it. I'm still traumatized by it. Blaming God is folly. Blaming God will be foolishness. Blaming God would be arrogance on my part. Blaming God would also ignore what God has revealed about his will and the way he wants me to be treated. So I'm not going to do that. In my, in, in my anger, do not sin, right? As Ephesians says. So we sometimes need clear thinking in the midst of those deeply emotional times. It's also when clear thinking is the least welcomed, <laughs> unfortunately. All right, number six from David Burks. Are man-made covenants for pastoral ordination biblical? Specifically, covenants binding oneself to denominational doctrines and principles. The Salvation Army requires this for their pastors. Okay, so I'm not gonna, and Salvation Army is is a whole church group. I, I, I don't know, I wasn't aware of that before. Um, There probably just aren't very many in my area, but the, um, the idea of a covenant of a pastor who's being ordained by a, by a group agreeing that he'll, he believes and he'll teach certain doctrines and and theology and that kind of thing. I don't have any problem with that. Like I really don't, um, you're giving a pastor, he has such an incredibly high role in the life of people that to ask him to agree and promise certain things as he steps into that role as like an agreement with the congregation, with the elders, I think that's appropriate. I think where the debate would take place is what should be in that covenant. What should it, what should it consist of, right? So um, I do think that denominations often require too much doctrinal conformity that it's too, like we'll speak of um uh, we, we should have doctrinal conformity on the essentials. Don't get me wrong. Like if you don't hold to the essentials of the Christian faith, then you shouldn't be a pastor. You're not a Christian. <laughs> How can you be a pastor? Um, but let's say that, you know, in teaching, your your covenant requires you to like have, you have to have this view of um, uh, the age of the earth, of the nature of um, of inspiration in in its and it's not just the fact of inspiration, but the nature of inspiration in all of its details. You have to have our view of the book of revelation and how to interpret eschatology. You have to have our view of, uh, women in leadership or in ministry, our view of the appropriate roles of, of, of family, you know, that kind of thing. You have to have our view of the Filioque statement, uh, between the Eastern and Western divide. You have to have our perspective on every single little thing. In fact, we, we think you should interpret the parable of the sower this way. And so you have to interpret it that way. Like at, at some point, you know, you realize there's a line somewhere. Somewhere there's a line where you say, here we can agree to disagree. Now, I think if the denomination says we want consistency and the, and the church says we want consistency here, it's okay for them to say to a pastor, these are our, our, our views on these issues. Um, if you don't agree, we don't want to hire you. Okay, that's fine. They can do that. Or they could perhaps say, can we be gracious on this topic so that we will be open to different people who have different views? Let's say infant baptism. I have a view of infant baptism. I don't think that it's required. I don't think it's taught and I don't think it's exampled in the, in the scripture. Okay. But, but if I was co-pastoring a church with a pastor who believed it, I would think the best way for us to handle this is that we could both teach our views and ask the church to be gracious to each other on this topic. I think that's the better way to handle it as opposed to like. I don't know, dividing from each other. Um, so the 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 cons- what consists in the covenant to me that's interesting, um, and that's important. But if you're the pastor who's being asked to sign this covenant, let me ask you to have grace and say this: the the congregation or group of people you want to serve, if they are requiring you to be all nitpicked on every single doctrinal issue, then rather than kick against that, take that as a sign that that's not where you need to be, right? Like realize that this is not a good fit. If that's if that's the situation and you feel like you can't fit into that, then be gracious and strive for unity by not creating the division of accepting that job and signing something you don't believe. All right, we'll go to the next question. Philip Wright, I've never, Philip says, I've never felt slash heard from the Holy Spirit of, or God. I believe in and follow Jesus, but I feel like I'm missing something. Should a Christian be literally hearing slash feeling something from God? This is a tough uh, issue. Um, okay, Philip, uh, full disclosure, I think you probably have heard from God. Um, I think you probably have. So maybe you haven't knowingly heard from the Lord where you're like, I know God is speaking to me. I know the Lord has revealed this thing to me. And that's fine. That's not necessary. But I think you have heard from God. In fact, from a New Testament perspective, everybody, this is clear in, I think, the New Testament, everybody who has come to the gospel has individually heard from God. They didn't just hear information and make an objective decision to, to, to follow Christ, but rather the the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin, righteousness, judgment to come, the Holy Spirit bringing sort of the, showing the veracity of the of the truth of the gospel to you, and you responded and believed. So you've heard from God, right? Jesus talked about this. He's like everyone who's who, who's heard, you know, comes to me, that, that it's like a divine revelation. So if you've heard the gospel, you're a Christian, you've heard from God, Philip, in the most important possible way. Now, if you're asking... I prayed about who to get married to and I feel like God didn't show me anything. Okay. Well, there's no promise in scripture that he will. Right. And, and you might know some believers who it seems like their steps are just ordered, or at least they say they're ordered, right? Like they're, they pray. And it seems like God just shows them and shows them and shows them and shows them all the time. Um, I do think that that can happen, but I don't think it's healthy for an environment of Christians, a, a body of believers to create that expectation. When you create that expectation, here's the, Here's the harm that I've seen. I've seen it. God doesn't seem to normally work that way in the body of Christ, where each of our steps are ordered by God, where every job that you go to, you know, this was the Lord. The Lord revealed this to you. Every decision you make, who you're going to date or marry, that God clearly tells you that's the one for you. Um, This doesn't seem to be the normal way that God functions like 90% of the time in the church. And the danger is if we pretend it is, or if we try to present it as it is, now nowhere in scripture does it say that that's how it's supposed to be. But if we start to act like it is and in our community of believers, we think we're supposed to get this sort of special direction all the time. You know, like I'm, I'm I'm going to go on vacation and I'm praying about it. And I feel like God's really telling me Cancun or something like that, which I heard was not a very good place to go. Um, but, but let, like, let's say you're that kind of person or you're driving down the street and you feel like the Lord's telling you to pull over and then get out of the car and go up to that person and talk to them and tell them this, give them this message for me. Now, can God do that? Yes. But if you create the expectation in an environment that people are going to all experience this, A, it's not a biblical expectation. I don't see clear examples in Scripture of this. I don't. Um, B. The people who will rise up in your church as the spiritual ones will be the people who are the best at getting this wrong. And this I've seen happen. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm I'm going out on a limb. You guys, listen. This is this is Mike's opinion here. Okay, I could be wrong on this, but this is my perception is that the people, in, in and I've been there, in communities of churches where you're expecting to hear from God all the time, personally, specially, direction, guidance, all the time. The people who rise up as being the pillars in that community, the people who hear from God, who always come out with stories, God showed me this, and then God led me here, and God told me to do this, tend to be the people who are the best at mis, misunderstanding God's voice for their own heart. And they rise up, not because they're the most spiritual, because they have the most stories. That creates a strange environment where we become sensitive to our imaginations and to our own hearts instead of sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That concerns me greatly. And I think the best way to check this is to make sure we look at track records. Um, that, you know, when, when you think you hear from God, like I, I believe God has spoken to me, okay? But I don't think it happens like all the time. I really don't. Um, but there's times where I don't know. I don't know for sure. But, um, but I look at my track record and I go, was I accurate? Was I right? Was I correct? Or did I have to go back on that later after I said it was the Lord? And if that happens to you on any kind of normal basis where you got to, this is God. And then later you're like, oh, I guess, I guess, I guess not. Then that means you're not reliable. You're, you're like, you can't tell the difference between your heart and the Lord. And at that point, I'd say it'd be better to just make wise decisions than to mistakenly think you're hearing God's voice, to just follow clear teachings of scripture than to guess Maybe this feelings from God, and then do things that are weird, or potentially dangerous, in the name of the Lord. So, um, and uh, uh, an example of this is when I um, prayed about my wife, me and me and Allison, right? I prayed about that. I was, you know, very much in prayer, fasting, and praying, and I really felt like the Holy Spirit told me, like, and this is one of those rare moments, right, where the Holy Spirit told me that she was a uh, a good thing. Um, I know it sounds like a vague f- phrase, but it was what I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, and I really do think this was the Lord, was that not that I was told to marry her or not to marry her, but that this was she was appropriately good. Like God was like, this is your choice, Mike. That would be good if you want to get married, and it's also good if you don't. And I remember hearing that and being like, it wasn't what I expected. I wanted God to tell me, marry her, don't marry her, because then it would be like guaranteed success. I, I had this false impression. And... And so then I, I remember praying, Lord, I, uh, if, if this is really you, I really feel like it's you. If it's really you, I just pray that somebody would give me this Ecclesiastes scripture, right? Two are better than one. I said, I prayed somebody would give me that scripture today because I, I I just, I think this is you, but I'm not sure. And I, forgive me for my own weakness here. And so, um, and I'm not suggesting you guys go and do this. Please don't try to copy other people's experiences, but, but what happened to me is I, I go inside. Uh, I was at the school of ministry at the time over at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and I walk inside and the first guy I talked to is my buddy, Joe. And, uh, he's like, what's going on, Mike? And I was like, oh yeah, man, I'm just, I'm praying about this girl. And, and, and Joe just interrupts me and says, you know, like two are better than one. And I really feel like that was confirmation that that was the Lord. And, um, that happens like once in a great, great while with my life. Should I, should I, should I think I'm less spiritual if it doesn't happen more? I don't know. I mean, God's will be done. Maybe you're less spiritual. Maybe that's just not how God wants to work with you. Maybe you're not fasting and praying. Maybe you're not seeking Him. Maybe you are, and you're not getting those clear answers. Maybe He wants you to, like, sort of step up and make wise choices instead of trying to get Him to give give you uh, step-by-step guidance all the time. Perhaps that's that's the situation. I don't know. God knows. Um, but then there are those who feel that they just have everything has to be the Lord. Every moment has to be God speaking to me. Um, I remember someone calling for prayer one time, and they were they were like what cereal should i eat and they wanted like wisdom from god like a word from god about what cereal to eat and now here's someone who's probably got some psychological issues right i my buddy Jaime, uh he he prayed for about his wife and he prayed and prayed and prayed and he fasted and prayed and he tells me like i just have nothing from the lord i don't know i don't know what what i should do and i and my counsel to him was Jaime, it's up to you man Right? you prayed you sought the lord you did your job you sought the lord God didn't, didn't give you a revelation about it. So you make a godly choice. She's a believer. She loves the Lord. You have a good relationship. Get married. You know, like it seemed pretty simple. And they did. And they're still together today. So um, yeah, I don't think you should be worried. I don't think you're missing something. You might want to seek the Lord more if you feel like you're not doing that enough. But it's not required. All right, number eight, Jordan Bolden says, what are your thoughts on the overcomers mentioned by Jesus in Revelation 3 verses 5 through 12? The overcomers, Uh, would you consider these to be believers in general or a specific group of believers or some other group? And I'll admit that I actually, I feel sometimes I'm like on the fence on this particular question. So let's read, read the passage. Um, and here there's two letters that, that are, one is to Sardis and the other one is to Philadelphia. Okay. So I'm going to read both of them. We'll read verse, uh, one through 12 here. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. And this is, this is what Jesus is saying to send to this church, this message. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Okay, they're they're like a dead church. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Okay, so they're mostly dead, right? I like the analogy of the um, princess bride. It's mostly dead. Uh, For I have not found your works perfect before God or complete or mature. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch. I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Okay. That's the first he who overcomes. And I'm just going to give you what we observe from the passage, right? We're we're looking at the text to try to indicate for us what is meant by he who overcomes. Well, let's look at what happens to the one who overcomes. He'll be clothed in white garments. His name will not be blotted out from the book of life. And Jesus will confess his name before his father and the angels. This seems to imply salvation. Okay. That verse five does seem clearly to be talking about someone who's saved because you don't have saved people that don't have the white garments that are blotted out of the book of life and, whose names are not confessed before the father and his angels. Now let's read verse seven. Uh, and to the angel in the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says, he who's holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, now here's that phrase again, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Okay, this is, uh, I think, probably, especially because of the he who overcomes previously, this is probably talking about someone who's saved. They they overcome because they're saved. He who overcomes, uh, he's going to be a pillar in the temple of God, go out no more. Now, the, the temple in Revelation is actually the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. And being a pillar in the temple and not going out anymore means you are permanently part of that body of Christ that is the temple, right? I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God because you belong in God's city in in, in this heaven meets earth thing that happens in Revelation 21 and 22. You get God's name because you belong to God. So that's the salvation thing. Then um, also I'll write on him my new name. Later, we find Jesus has a, a name that no one knows but himself. This is his in his exaltation when he's revealed in his glory. So that being said, let me t- after I said all that, let me read your question one more time because I may have left something out. What are your thoughts on the overcomers mentioned by Jesus in Revelation 3? Would you consider those to be believers in general or a specific group of believers or some other group? Okay, options. Um, they're just believers in general because every believer, true believer is an overcomer. Um, another option is they're a subset of believers. Okay, I reject that one because I think that the things they get for overcoming are things that believers get, all, all believers get. And then, um, are they some other group? Uh, no, okay, so that, that would be some of the non-believing. I don't know what the, what the other group would be. Now the, the, the debate then I think that naturally comes up is they overcome. Does that mean that, that believers who he writes to in Sardis, they're believers and they might lose their salvation? Well, I don't think that we should view these letters this way. It's my perspective currently on this is when we look at the, uh, the writings of the New Testament and we ask who the audience was, we shouldn't assume that they were all genuinely saved. They're all at least in name Christians. But how genuine are they? How real is it? Well, maybe you have to wait till they overcome to see how real that is. What I'm suggesting is I don't think this passage has bearing on the once saved, always saved debate. Um, for that reason. All right. For the sake of time, I'll move forward. Forgive me if I'm not giving you all the details you want. James Karina Witherow says, do angels sing or is worshiping via singing something unique to humanity? Thank you so much for your ministry. It's really encouraging to me. Uh, For me and my wife, how can we be praying for you and your family? Lots of questions. All right. Do angels sing? We don't actually have, to my knowledge, any place in scripture where angels sing although we have Christmas songs that sing about angels singing. Um, But not to my knowledge, we have them proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, does that mean they can't sing? No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm just, I just want to work through it biblically here. I don't know specifically of angels having sung yet. We do have scripture where where there's like um, musical instruments associated with angels this is in if you if you look at like the trumpet of god right that there's when jesus returns this whole idea of a trumpet there's this these mentioning of like musical elements having to do with angelic beings when uh when we're in revelation as well we see these visions and there's there is the singing of songs in revelation although the people singing them is a little bit of a challenge um let me see here um Let's look at this passage, interesting passage to look at in this context. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures, okay, four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, does this mean that like there literally are these 24 elders they are literally, I think this is a vision. I don't think, I think this is something he's seeing for his benefit, but it is interesting that they're seeing these living creatures, 24 elders, they're doing something musical together um which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song now there's the singing of a song and was that were the four living creatures which seem to be like some type of angelic being there's different kinds of angels it seems in scripture well they they seem to be singing too right? They sing a new song. Possibly it's them singing, or is it just the 24 elders? They're certainly participating in something musical. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us Kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Now the song itself seems to be talking about believers. So you might say, well, only the ones that were singing were the, um, were the, were the, were the humans, right? The saved humans. He says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Okay. Now we definitely have to say the living creatures, angels are involved in this. Okay. They're involved. And they say, doesn't say sing, say with a loud voice, with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Um, so there's an interesting, um, uh, thing, you, you could see how you could kind of go back and forth, but let me just do some normal human reasoning now. Um, they can talk, they can speak loudly, they participate in things that are something like singing, right? They particip- participate in some fashion while singing is taking place. It's strange to think that they have vocalization skills, but couldn't sing. That would seem an arbitrary limit to put on them. They can vocalize, they can make noise, but they can't sing. That would seem strange. So... That being said, yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised at all to hear angelic music. Um, I guess that's it. That's all I got to say. All right, let's go to number 10. Uh, Anita Watch says, um, you can get a watch. You can get one on Amazon. Uh, it's probably not what your name means. I heard there are more proofs that Jesus is real, a real person than there are for people like King Tut, etc. Is this true? If so, is there somewhere I can go to find those proofs? Um, yeah. There's actually a lot of different works. Um, okay, so one of the quotes that you could give, I think it was Gerd Ludeman who said there was um, it, it. It's a solid fact of history that, in fact, let me give you some. If I can find really quick my notes on this, if I can find my notes on this, I can give you guys some actual quotes real quick that might you might find helpful. So um, let me go into my notes. This is this is going to take just a moment you can skip ahead if you like. And and by the way there's ta- there should be timestamps in all of the um the videos. After like a couple hours after this li- live stream's over, we'll put timestamps so you can bounce around to exactly the questions that are most interesting to you. I do this every Friday and hope that um it's a great blessing to you actually. Okay, so let me talk not just about Jesus. Okay, some skeptics will push back on this and they'll say, oh, well, sure, in the first century, some Jew named Jesus existed, which is another way of saying nothing, right? Because Jesus is actually a very common name, Yeshua, in the first century. But we're talking about like the biblical Jesus. Like, is the Jesus the Bible is talking about? Did he exist? Well, not only did he exist, but here are some specific references to suggest that he very much existed. In fact, it's part of what historians sometimes call our historical bedrock. Like these are facts known past doubting. There is no reason to doubt the existence of Jesus and that it's specifically the Jesus that the Bible talks about. That doesn't mean historians all agree that everything the Bible says about Jesus happened. Of course, they don't all agree on this. There's all kinds of issues going on there that aren't just about history, but are also spiritual issues. But um, But here's... A few things, three, just three things. Actually, I can give you 12 things that are historical bedrock, but here's three things that are historical bedrock about Jesus. Jesus really existed, right? He died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. He died by crucifixion. Shortly after his death, the disciples had experiences that led them to believe and proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. That's considered historical bedrock. The disciples had some kind of experience. They, that caused them to believe Jesus had actually appeared to them and was alive. Um, and then, Three, within a few years after Jesus' death, Paul converted after experiencing what he interpreted as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to him. That those are just historical facts. Let me quote to you a little bit of resources, historical sources on the death of Jesus by crucifixion. Tacitus, writing in about 109 AD, 109 AD. We're talking pretty close to the time of Jesus. He's not a Christian, right? But he writes this in his his annals, um, 15.44, if you want to look it up. He says, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that would be crucifixion. They didn't like using the phrase crucifixion. They would say extreme penalty sometimes. During the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our proc- procurators, Pontius Pilate, uh, which is, he, he was killed by um, the... Uh, uh, by by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Lucian of Samosota in the 2nd century, he says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. This is not a Christian. And he writes in the 2nd century about the crucifixion of Jesus. Josephus, the majority of scholars would, would agree that Josephus, what he says about this is accurate, right? Um, that Jesus did in fact die under Pontius Pilate. This is like, Not really debated. Marabar Serapion, in a letter to his son from prison, sometime between 73 and 200 AD, this is another random guy writing a letter to his son. He writes out, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. Um, He writes about Jesus being crucified uh, or executed and connects it to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is really interesting. Uh, There's other less useful sources like in the Talmud. Then we have Christian sources. In every undisputed letter of Paul, that's in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, in other writings which are from Paul, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and specifically the phrases crucifixion or cross appear in multiple writings from Paul. Paul is a first century source, no matter what else you want to call him. There's, there's tons of other arguments I can give for this as well, but this is why there's just scholarly consensus. So let me quote to you some scholars. This is um, uh, McIntyre. Um, he says the following, Even those scholars and critics who've been moved to depart from almost everything else within the historical context of Christ's presence on earth have found it impossible to think away the factuality of the death of Christ. Uh, Atheist Gerd Ludemann says, Jesus's death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Jewish scholar um, who leans atheist Gezer Vermesh says, the passion of Jesus is part of history. Bart Ehrman Bart Ehrman, if you know who that is, he's not. These are not Christians, right? Um, he says one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. I mean, it, I could just I could just go on and on reading quotes from people, but you could look up some of my some of my stuff on Mike Winger, Resurrection of Jesus, and you could find all kinds of other resources there, and you can check it out. There's a short book you might be interested in. Um, Um, You might look at uh, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope by Gary Habermas. Or you could look at another one that's very interesting by William Lane Craig. And I, I know I have it here somewhere. Yeah, and it's real short. Real short, simple read. This one I might recommend to you is The Sun Rises, Historical Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus, William Lane Craig. What I'm suggesting is that proving that Jesus just existed is far too easy of a task. <laughs> it's just, it's already done and over. What I would be more interested in doing is demonstrating to people the resurrection of Christ. And doing that through historical evidence is actually a very wonderful and powerful argument for the truth of Christianity. All right, Warehouse SK, what would you say to the brethren that suggest that Satan is not actually a being? People argue that the Old Testament doesn't describe him as a singular being, but something of the human mind. Um so I would disagree with that on the Old Testament but let me just grant let's just grant that the Old Testament describes him as being something of the human mind whatever that means what about the New Testament if the New Testament is God's word then it may reveal more information to us about the nature of Satan and it certainly gives us a lot of details Satan is definitely seen as a personal being with agendas and with an individual fate coming in the future He is the adversary, that's true, but he's not just the adversary. When you take the whole Bible, right? When you do systematic theology, I want to take all of scripture, Satan's absolutely a personal being. Now you could say, uh, perhaps, and I'm not not gonna, I'm just gonna grant it for the sake of argument. You want to say, in the Old Testament, as we don't have the full revelation yet, Satan is sometimes just like an adversary. Like maybe as you read Genesis, you don't know who the serpent being is. It's still a question mark. But when you get to revelation, you know that he's the serpent of old. Satan is identified as the serpent of old, right? The deceiver, the one who ultimately deceived Eve is what's implied. So yeah, Satan is a personal being. Um, Satan entered Judas. This isn't like a generic adversary entered Judas. Like, what does that mean? So once you pull the whole counsel of God's word, the idea that Satan is less than a literal being, it just doesn't hold water at all. What we do sometimes though with theology is what's called biblical theology. Um, I like the phrase biblical theology, and I even think it's a very valuable study, but it can be limited. It's where you take a text of the Bible, like let's say Genesis, and you ask, what does say Genesis teach us about Satan? And you limit what you will believe, like the Bible's affirming about Satan to just what Genesis says about Satan. And you can even sometimes take these books of the Bible and put them against each other. I think that this is a denial of inspiration God inspired scriptures, so what Genesis reveals is part of the whole story God is telling that takes us all the way to Revelation. And so when I get the full revelation of God's word, I have things like the doctrine of the Trinity, I have things like Satan as a personal being, and uh, who was the one tempting Eve in the garden. And I think that um, uh, that seems pretty obvious and clear. So I would ignore for a second the battle over Old Testament texts and go to the New Testament and then establish that whatever partial information we have about him in the Old Testament, we have further revelation. And then you could hopefully move forward in that conversation. Um, Let's see. Caitlin McWilliams. It says, uh, her question, sorry, says, discerning the spirit, I'm having a hard time understanding how Christians are all supposed to have the same Holy Spirit, but we are so divided on so many issues. Oh, well, to me, this is easy, Caitlin. Um, So forgive me if I oversimplify. I'm not trying to. I really am not. Um, if all we were was the Holy Spirit embodied in people, we would obviously have total unity. Uh, but if we're not, but if we're humans who are subject to our own wills and our own decisions and our own opinions and our own confusions and our own little little um, sectarian views, then it totally explains why there's going to be division. Now, if we're in addition to that, if we're fallen people who are still subject to the temptations of our sins and to the battling and the fighting and the, and like James talked about, why do these wars? Well, it's because you guys have desires that are selfish and you're not, you're not going to God for those things. And, um, then I think the division makes total sense, makes total sense. Like, look at the simple human level of this. You raised up in a little church, you go there your whole life, everything they taught you about the Bible, you thought was just simply the way it is. You don't even know that there's disagreements on some of these doctrines that are secondary and so you encounter a Christian who has different views than you, and you immediately think they're not something's wrong with them, right? Because they don't have the same view of me as, as I do on Romans seven, for instance. So here's a debate in the church. Is Romans seven about and Paul talks about like wretched man than I am? Is that about the believer's experience, or is that about the pre-believers' experience? And then you come to Romans eight, and it's like, the, you know the believer's not supposed to be like wretched man than I am. I, I do what I don't want, and i I, I don't do what I do want to do. Like that debate, the debate in Romans 7 is like, is Paul talking about his pre-Christian or post-Christian experience? Now, let's say that you've heard it taught from the pulpit. This is about your post-Christian experience. And you go to a church where someone's like, actually, I think this is his pre-Christian experience. Now you might think, oh, I, I can't trust these people. I can't rely on them. I, I'm, I'm going to be divided from them. Um, and that's just a natural consequence of thinking that everything your church has ever taught you has been consistent throughout Christianity. I'm in my bubble. I didn't realize there were other bubbles. <laughs> and so we we learn to be gracious on secondary issues. This is a learned behavior. It's something that I think we can learn as we model Christ and model um, how he had such patience with the disciples who sometimes had wrong views and wrong ideas. And he still had patience with them. Um, so we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But yeah, the Holy Spirit provides unity, but we provide the division. And there's plenty of us doing that. So I feel like that ex- that explains it. God guide us and direct us. Lucy Bailey has a question number thirteen, and I'm gonna I'm gonna speed up here uh, for the sake of time. But um, Lucy Bailey says, "Hey, Mike. First of all, thanks for all you do. This channel is such a blessing." And Lucy, thanks for telling me. <laughs> I'm like literally that's the whole thing. It's just to be a blessing to you guys and impact your lives uh, in positive ways, and for the name of Christ to glorify Him. And that's very encouraging. Uh, can you explain the what? Uh, can you explain what appears to be a contradiction in 1 Kings 7.26 and 2 Chronicles 4.5 due to the different numbers. Usually this kind of thing I'd have to look up like and spend some time on. Um, so forgive me if I'm not able to answer this off the top of my head, but let me go to the passages you mentioned. 1 Kings 7.26. It was a hand thick and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. Okay, the, um, the thing being discussed here is I think the... Um, the water carrier, the water device that was, device, the water vessel that was there in the temple, uh, for the, for the actual tabern, not the tabernacle, but the temple itself. So this is like description, I think, if, if I'm remembering correctly of the building of the different structures inside the tabernacle or temple, excuse me, uh, below its brim. Um, let's just, okay. The sea and the oxen. Okay. It's often called the sea, which I know sounds weird to us nowadays. It's just a term we don't use that way. Um, it, But it is something that's filled with water. So, and he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Uh, Then we get down to the verse you mentioned. Um, Verse 26. It was a handbreadth thick and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2000 baths. Let's see, the other passage you mentioned is 2 Chronicles 4, 5. I do remember looking this up years ago, but that was years ago. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 3,000 baths. Um, So what are some of our options? Uh, Let me just go back and make sure I'm getting the the terms correct. It contained 3,000 baths. It contained 2,000 baths. Which was it? So the options on the table for us like immediately are that the, the the numbers 2000 and 3000 baths are describing different things. Um so it's different different things are being measured. This could be like say the say the, the thing is being measured is how much water they would actually put in it, maybe 2000 baths. But maybe it could have had 3000 but they didn't fill it to the brim. Okay? Well, they could be measuring different things. Another could be that they're um they're actually the same amount that perhaps between 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we're actually getting the the amount a bath, that amount changes. Okay, that's a possibility. Another possibility, I'm, I, I don't lean that way. <laughs> I'm just giving you our, what are logical options? Another option is that it's actually the text itself is mistaken. And what I mean by that is in the original, they would have had different numbers. Now this is potential, although I'm not saying that this is the case because I would have to actually go look at like the textual criticism on these issues. But numbers are the easiest thing for people who are copying the Bible down to get wrong because especially Hebrew Old Testament, the numbers are these tiny little, they're not like in English where we have our numbers as they're like letters. Our numbers look like letters. The numbers they would use were like tiny and small and easy for them to become obscure or to become just lost. Okay, you get a hold in the document and that's where the number was. So we don't know. So those are options. I don't know what the right answer is here. I remember looking at it years ago. Can't remember now what the right answer or what the most likely answer was. So, forgive me for not being able to help you out there off the top of my head, Lucy. Um, I would recommend uh, check out maybe Got Questions. They're a great resource, you guys. I think a lot of their articles and stuff are very helpful, very useful, and very good. And um, can I tell you something though, Lucy, on a more personal note? I used to be really bugged when I would find these things. This is why I would always, every time, it would stop and go look it up and go research it and figure out the answers. And I'd be going back and forth discussing, usually with non-believers, about supposed errors in the Bible. And I would give good answers, at least I thought good answers, right? And then they would just ask another question and ignore me usually. Um, but it doesn't bother me that much anymore. And one of the reasons is, A, I have gotten good answers to so many hard questions that it's raised my general confidence and trust that I'm sure there's a legitimate answer even if I don't know it off the top of my head. So it's like the the track record of reliability that scripture has has given me greater confidence. And I hope that you'll come to that point if you, if you are maybe starting out any of you out there you're starting out doing apologetic stuff and something freaks you out and then you get you dig and you dig and you get an answer and you're like ah oh, and then something freaks you out and you get you dig and you get an answer, oh, it's like how many times does this have to happen before you start to just raise your trust in the Word of God? Um, but another reason is this. I don't think the truth of Christianity depends on me being able to reconcile these two verses. Now, I do think they're reconcilable. I believe that the word of God is inerrant. But I think this, I think that this is not like, okay, there are people who literally think if they can't find an answer to 1 Kings 7.26 and 2 Chronicles 4.5, that therefore like they're atheists now. That is one of the, and forgive me, you guys, that is one of the most foolish things ever. But it really is something that I once probably would have entertained, right? If the Bible's not true, then just, I throw it all out. All of it's gone. And the inerrancy of scripture is not, is not the bedrock foundation for the truth of the gospel of Christ. And if you realize this, you can calm down a little bit. This is coming from someone who's an inerrantist, right? I do think the Bible's inerrant. I do believe that it's, it's, it is without error. And that does mean in the original manuscripts, right? There could be copyist things going on. And sometimes there are. But um, but yeah. So I, I, I suppose we'll, we'll probably find a likely answer there. Maybe it's the copyist issue is the more likely one. And um, hopefully it doesn't freak you out. Dylan has a question. says, Hi, Mike. How historically plausible is it that the Jesus genealogies in Matthew and Luke authentically trace back to the exile, King David, Abraham, and so on? Um, I mean, okay, I'm going to speak. I'm not a historian, okay? I have done a lot of study on on Jesus in particular, and I've done studies on different things, so I'm going to speak not as a historian here. And that that question, how historically plausible is it? Let me just throw in a few thoughts for you here, Dylan. One is... um, If inspiration is true, it makes it incredibly historically plausible. If the authors, Matthew and Luke, were inspired by the Holy Spirit in their writings, it makes it very plausible that they got accurate the genealogy of Jesus, right? Going probably, in my opinion, through Luke and through, uh, I'm sorry, through um, uh, Joseph and through Mary in the different gospels. Um, That is actually kind of important because we live in a real world, and in the real world, God either did or did not inspire the Bible. If he didn't inspire it, that would lower your confidence in the text. If he did inspire it, that would raise your confidence in the text. So that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. Now, I think you can show inspiration through um, prophecy and connecting the unity of the Bible, those two different issues, prophecy and fulfillment, as well as the unity of Scripture, like Jesus in the Old Testament type stuff. And when you show this, that builds a case that Matthew and Luke are accurate in their genealogies because it supports the, the inspiration of Scripture. Um, now, aside from that issue, which is a huge issue, which is probably the central issue we're dealing with here is inspiration. Um, when it comes to inerrancy, that's inspiration is what influences my view on inerrancy. That's a primary thing there. Um, and it's true. Either God did or didn't inspire. If he did inspire, this should affect the way we approach scripture and to pretend otherwise is I think unwise. Now, um, historically speaking, were the Jews interested in their genealogies? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were they? Oh, they most certainly were. Now, after the destruction of the temple and that that ho- all that horror that happened, it was a lot harder for Jews to track their genealogies. That's true. But this is before that event. This is many years before that event. So historically, are they able to trace their genealogies? Are they able to, to walk them back? And then the, the, the individuals that they have, that they're walking them back through are actually people in the Old Testament. So how likely is it that in the family of Abraham, right? We already have like from... From Adam to Abraham, more than that, from Adam to David, we have the genealogy of Jesus in the Old Testament. If Jesus is the son of David, we've already got a bunch of these names we can fill in automatically, right? So this is not something they had to, like, remember exactly. They could just know it's David is the common denominator there. Now, from David down to current families in, in Jerusalem, would they want to track their records to know their genealogy of how they connect with King David, how they're part of the Davidic dynasty. Very likely. This seems very likely. And so I think that this adds more plausibility to it. Number 15, Andrew says, as a side B, celibate, same-sex attracted Christian. I don't know what you mean by side B. So forgive me for that. That terminology doesn't ring a bell to me. Uh, But you say, as a side B, celibate, same-sex attracted Christian, do you believe God can change my attraction to eventually marry a woman? Andrew, I believe he can in the sense that I believe God can do anything. Do I expect him to do it is, a, is, is to me a more important question. And the answer is no, I don't expect him to. I don't expect him not to. Like, I'm not like, God would never do that for you, Andrew. It's just, I have no promise in scripture that God will do that for you. So how can I ask you to to have that expectation that God will do that for you? And I think Christians, our message to people who are dealing with same-sex attraction and and this includes you know christians you have same-sex attraction the biblical message to you the biblical message to you is not that you have to fix your desires so they're all pointed in the right direction the answer to you is to resist desires that are pointed in the wrong direction and to do good things instead now marriage is not a necessity as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Marriage relationships, romantic relationships, I should say, are not a necessity as a Christian. This is really weird because in, in Jesus's culture, catch how weird this is. Listen to this, Angela. I hope this sinks in for, for you, for everybody. In Jesus's culture and time, it was weird if you didn't want to get married. Like that was considered strange. Now to the Jews, this was because they had a religious mandate. They, and this is in the rabbinic writings. They believed that they had an obligation to be fruitful and multiply, to continue to have kids. And so there was discussion over a over, uh, over permission for divorce if a person was unable to have kids. After 10 years, you guys should you guys can't get divorced. Because they had this they in other words, they thought having kids was important enough to break up a marriage. Now, Jesus did not agree with that. I'm talking about their religious culture. Jesus gives us a different story. In the Roman culture, it was also considered very important to have kids but not just for religious reasons, for government reasons. The government would even, there were times where the government would require a widow if she was young enough to remarry within two years. The Roman government, because they wanted you to have more Roman kids so they could have more Roman military so they could have the power to continue to dominate the world. So that's the culture Jesus grows up in. In the Roman and the Jewish world, having kids is considered very important and therefore relationships are pushed. Now when Jesus gives his instruction on divorce and he says, no divorce except for adultery. Now, I think that there can be extreme ex- examples. And I, in my whole series on marriage and divorce, I talk about this in detail. You guys can just Google that if you want to see my three-hour teaching on the topic. But when Jesus gives this instruction, the disciples are like, that's really tough. That's You're making this really hard, Jesus. It's better to just not get married. Now they say this as a, as a type of hyperbole. They're saying, may as well not get married. Jesus responds and says, yeah, for some people, that's a good choice i'm paraphrasing here but he's like yeah some people that's exactly what they're gonna do if you can take it go ahead and do it this implies that having a relationship and it's interesting in their culture it was having kids was so important in our culture it's the opposite we romanticize the relationship of husband wife and of, of of just any kind of like intimate sexual relationship like that is the end goal um whereas in their culture, they, they looked at having kids as being a nice end goal. We, we tend to want, like we promote abortion and we devalue children uh, massively. We romanticize them once they're like, you know, born. But before that, we act like they're just clumps of tissue um, and we support killing them. So, so we're obviously not as interested in the having kids part. We're more interested in the having sexual and romantic experiences part, which we've made to be the primary thing. This causes people who are same-sex attracted to feel like the only way they can be fulfilled is if they have some kind of romantic relationships. And so either I need same-sex relationships or I need my affections changed so I can have opposite-sex relations. Biblically, this is not the goal. The goal is obedience to God. And that might mean celibacy. And celibacy is not a bad word. It's a great way to honor God. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about celibacy, not as a bad thing, but as something that is actually... Enables you to serve God even more than when you're married. Singleness and celibacy can be godly and wonderful things. And um, does that mean they're always easy? No, doesn't mean they're always easy. But but we need to reformat our minds and think about it the way the Scripture does. Can God change your attraction? Yeah, He can. I mean, because He can do miracles. Like He could He could raise the dead every day of the week. But do we rely on the miraculous as the normal way God's going to interact with us in the world? Well, that wouldn't even make it miracles if you just did it all the time. Uh, but rather we, we say, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to serve God in my life. And every Christian has to die to desires they have. Every Christian. And getting in a r- romantic relationship isn't as self-fulfilling <laughs> as, as people want to think it is anyways based on movies and things like that where they're just trying to sell stuff make money all right number 16 curious soldier i said i was gonna go faster but i, I appear to be lying to you i'm newly diagnosed uh with a very debilitating chronic illness i uh, curious sojourner i'm very sorry and i hope you guys would think to pray for for this person how do i continue to serve the lord in my role as a wife and mother and serve the body of christ i'm very discouraged um it's 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 entirely appropriate when you have less ability you do less things that's okay this is something that I think hits us, especially like you're, you're getting it because of a debilitating chronic illness, but, but, um, there are people who experience this because of just old age. There's this sense in which we get, we all get there eventually, like, or unless we suddenly die, like we all will eventually see our bodies declining and our abilities diminishing. Like at some point in my own teaching ministry, I'm not going to be able to think clearly enough to handle like a Q and a, like I'll be older and I'll be like, And hopefully, God willing, I'll have the wisdom to say, hey, Mike, you're slipping. It's time to slow down. And then I'm going to deal with all the same issues you're dealing with, which is like, hey, am I really serving God well? Am I really doing what God's called me to do? But the rule has never been output. It has never been output. God is not counting our output. He's counting our faithfulness. Your whole call is to be faithful to God in whatever situation you find yourself. And if you find yourself... Debilitated, and you find yourself faithful in that place. That's it. You will do less. You can't do as much. Whatever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord, and he will reward you. So your whole call is just faithfulness. Just be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. We as Christians are to strive for faithfulness, not to try to count the output that we produce from our ministries, from our activities. Now, I learned this lesson long before my ministry kind of blew up online, I just, I had to learn it slowly over time. It's like, all right, well, guess I'll never have a big giant ministry. I'll just, that's all right. You know what, Lord? I'm content just to be faithful. I just want to, when I die, I just want you to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's it. That's it. Now, as far as counting all the fruit, you wait. Now, Paul did this. Um, let me see um, if I can take you to the text. Yeah, here we go. Paul talks about um, people's attitude towards him and his attitude towards his own ministry. Now, Paul obviously had a massive ministry that had a bigger impact than maybe he even realized at the time, because look, he's still impacting us today. Here we are reading his letter. Um, but he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, right? What's that? See, this is, I'm not making this up. Like, this is the biblical rule. You know, carry a sojourner. You just have to be faithful. That's all that's required of you. It's not about how great of a mom you are. It's about how faithful you are in your mothering. How, what what you do with what you've got, right? And if, and if of what you've got is a crippling illness, then how faithful are you with that? That's it. Verse three, he says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, He's talking about his faithfulness to the Lord and ministry. And he goes, I don't even care if you try to judge me. That's fine. You can try to judge me. People in Corinth were like ripping on Paul and um, the way some people do to me on YouTube, except I deserve it more than Paul did. Um, in fact, he says, I do not even judge myself. Now that's the shocking part. Paul's like, I literally don't even look at my own ministry to figure out how well I'm doing. He just tries to be faithful. He doesn't even judge his ministry for I am not aware of anything against myself. Now that's key. He doesn't know of anything he's done wrong, but I'm not thereby acquitted. That doesn't mean he's okay. He's in the clear. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, God's going to judge me and all of my work. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I think your application of this is you just be faithful and God will tell you how well you've done. Christians, stop trying to figure out how well you're doing and just ask if you're being faithful and then God will judge it all one day. Don't even judge yourself. Just God will judge it all one day. Just make sure you don't know of anything you're doing wrong and then trust him with all the rest. Yeah, God bless you. God help you through this. He can be glorified greatly even in that hardship. And you know that. But it's different when it's you going through it, I know. So, Lord bless you and help you. Steph R. Ago says, do you know anything about Lilith? I heard some rumors that she was Adam's first wife. I don't believe this, but I wanted to hear if you have any thoughts on it. Um, Yeah, so it's just, it's all baloney. It's just massive amounts of baloney. Some people are really attracted to this particular kind of baloney, right? Like, they don't want, like, what the Bible actually says. They want to think there's, like, a, some secret thing that came you know, before it, and it was changed, but none of that's remotely true. Like, the truth is so boring. The truth is like, it's just the Bible just says what it's always said. There's no real conspiracy theory. The New Testament's just, that's the way it was originally. It's pretty much the same. We just have to take it as is. The idea of Lilith, this is just later people wanting to take and borrow from the authority of the Bible. This happens all the time today too. They want to borrow from the authority of the Bible, from the authority of Christianity, from the authority of God, but then they want to put it on their own teachings. So they go, I want I want you to believe in this Lilith person. And so I'm going to tell you that she was Adam's original wife. Now you believe Adam, so maybe you'll believe my story too. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Um, it's just absolute nonsense. If someone says that Lilith is real, your job, Steph, I think at that point is to ask them, why do you think that? Why do you think that? And don't fall into the trap of thinking you have to prove wrong a claim that they're making that's weird and out there. Ask them to support it with evidence because otherwise you're going to be running in circles as they just kind of make stuff up. Uh, I have been there. <laughs> Number 18, two Messianic Jews says, why do you think Jesus appealed to his death and resurrection as his Messianic sign in Matthew 12, 39 to 40? All right, let's look at this. Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. But he answered them. Okay, well, let me back up just a little bit. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay, here's the context. I'm just going to give you the spoiler alert now. Um, In my view, the context is this. Jesus has already done a great number of signs, which these same scribes and Pharisees have rejected. They've rejected numerous miraculous signs that Jesus has shown. And now they, standing in front of him, ask for another sign. Um, This is the person who's rejecting God's revelation and asking God to give him a miracle, which they would probably never believe anyways. And these guys don't. Because when Jesus does miracles and they're aware of it, they still don't believe it. They go, oh, he does it by the power of Satan, right? There's a heart issue going on here. Jesus responds. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In context, because they've already received a bunch of signs and they ignored it. John the Baptist went before preaching that Christ was the one to come. Jesus, he went out in the power of the spirit. He cast out demons. He he healed the sick. He even raised dead, the dead. His disciples went out in his name and did the same things. And they're still rejecting him and saying, show us a sign, prove it. So that's why they're evil and adulterous. They rejected the signs they had. Like Jesus said to Capernaum, Bethsaida, "Woe to you, Capernaum, Bethsaida! If the miracles that had been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented." So, um, that's the context of them being an evil generation. So his response: "No sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You're going to get one last sign. This is this is your ultimate sign. And in context, this is the sign that if you reject it, that's it. You've rejected, you've rejected the truth of God. For justice." Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three, day, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the, the, the idea here is the death and resurrection of Christ. Jonah, you know, is a picture here, a type of Christ. Christ is the one who rises from the dead. Translation, right? Um, Jesus' resurrection will be the final sign. He's going to raise from the dead. And if you don't believe that, there's nothing. there's nothing for you. There's no other greater sign that God's going to give you. You've rejected it. You're, you're in judgment. And then he adds to that, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's ultimately talking about himself. So yeah, you guys are on the hook. You ask for a sign. I'll give you one more sign, sign of Jonah. I'll give you my death and resurrection. If You won't even listen to that. You're just going to have judgment to face. I think that that's the context there um it doesn't mean jesus would never show them any signs at all the context is he had already shown them a bunch of signs and they're asking for more and so jesus is like you get one more you get my death and resurrection number 18 dewey thomas says what do you think about taking medications like adderall um uh, i'm i used to be like more bothered by it now i'm now i'm not i'm just i'm speaking personally you guys my personal flow of thought on this so um, the cause of our mental issues, at least potentially, I mean, I mean, emotional issues like depression, things like that. At least potentially, it could be chemical problems in the brain, or it may it may be that your chemical imbalance in your brain isn't what's causing you to be depressed, but it's the result of your depression. Like you're living, I'm just giving you hypotheticals here. It's a, you're living a lifestyle that's leading you to a place of anxiety and depression and that results in chemical changes in your brain. Now, maybe these pills help now that isn't really the solution. If a lifestyle of say unbelief or sin is leading, if, if, cause it doesn't always lead that way. There's other reasons people can feel depression, plenty of other reasons, but let's suppose in that scenario that you've got a person who's rebelling against God in their life and that's the result of their, de- the result is their depression. But these, these, these pills will actually help them with some of the symptoms they're going through and may help them to kind of like restart and refocus on their life. That could be a positive thing. Um, what I'm opposed to though is, is the idea that um, if you do have outside sinful behaviors or sinful environments that are causing you to feel this way I'm opposed to the idea that the whole cure is a chemical treatment because then you have the same behaviors and you're just trying. This is like, like, let's say STDs. And let me just say this one more time because some people will not hear me on this. I'm going to say this one more time in the vain hope that someone will hear me. Everybody who's depressed is not depressed because of sinful behaviors they've committed. I am talking about that specific scenario because that's the specific scenario where I would have the most objection to somebody using something like Adderall. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, Let's say you're depressed because you just have a chemical imbalance of some kind. Then this should, and it helps, okay, do it. But with wisdom, because these things can also mess you up. I'm not a doctor, I'm not offering any medication to anybody. Um, But if you're depressed purely because of sin, and this thing helps you, it just can't be the whole solution. Uh, STDs is my example here. Let's say that AIDS is going around because of sinful fornication. Uh, There would never have been an AIDS epidemic if it wasn't for sinful fornication. Yes, it's true. Sometimes blood transfusions, but it never would have even gotten to that point if it wasn't for fornication, for mankind rebelling against God's sexual uh, commands. So let's say that we, we have condoms and we have these other things that would prevent STDs. I'm happy we're preventing STDs, but if we use that, To then justify the continuation of sinful behavior it's actually a harmful thing and not a helpful thing and that's one of the concerns with uh, medications is that it could be a way of me avoiding the natural human results of my of my sin that should be bringing me to a sorrow that leads to repentance but instead i'm just going to medicate it all away um Anyway, I, I do feel like life is really complicated and any blanket answer of Adderall good, Adderall bad is too clumsy of an answer and that each situation needs to be evaluated and considered. My main concern as a pastor, as a Christian, is that somebody's actual life is going to be consistent with, um, with the gospel of Christ, with the calling of God in their life and that they're not living sinful lives and then just trying to get along as best they can as they continue in their sin. But then that's not really about medication. That's about something else. Um, I think I forgot to hit the number a couple times. So I did 18. That was Dewey Thomas medications on Adderall, about Adderall. That was 18. 19 was the question about the Messianic sign. And then finally 20. Here's our last question. I don't know. I must have skipped something. Our last question is from John Roberts, who says, Is there any justification for believing that the Spirit and the Logos or lagos uh, aren't the same thing and that the lagos was made flesh when all instead of just a part of god's spirit was put in one man um okay so the theory here l- let me l- let me um let me challenge the way the question's worded real quick john so you put a rather large burden upon me with the, now i'm not saying you did this on purpose or anything right but ask who has a burden to prove the theology is there any justification for believing that the spirit and the logos aren't the same thing and that the, the the logos, I'll say logos is more proper here, was made flesh when all, instead of just a part of God's spirit was put in one man. Implication of the question is this, if you can't prove this wrong, then it's right. Burden of proof entirely on the person trying to say that Jesus is not the same as the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the burden of proof here. And and the way we ask these questions is important because in conversations, all that has to happen now is I can sit back and someone can say, well, here's my reasons why I would reject that. And I go, nah, I reject all that. Like that wasn't a good enough reason because my default position is believing that the Holy Spirit simply is Jesus. Um, on the other hand, we do have scripture that can answer this. So I would actually, I would want the person to actually justify and demonstrate why they believe what they believe about the spirit, um, but um, but e- easily. Let me just say. Um, let me go to the text of scripture here. A couple different verses are coming to mind, so I'm trying to find them. Uh, one would be in Luke. And this, this has to do with Jesus and the nature of, of the relationship with the Holy Spirit, right? So the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is speaking to Mary, um, and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So the Holy Spirit is active in the birth of Christ, like in, in his conception, I should say. Uh, it's a it's a miracle. There's nothing weird going on there for those who might have perverted minds. Um, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, uh, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So what we have with Jesus initially Is that there's already the work of the holy spirit okay so if you want to suggest um that jesus just is the holy spirit entering a human and that's that's the whole story all of god's spirit then this would mean that all of god's spirit is presently there with with jesus in jesus with mary right but then later you come to the to the baptism of jesus and let me see if I can, if I can find, um, um, hold on. Let me just get there in the baptism of Jesus. What you have is you've got a, um, uh, an example of the Holy Spirit then coming upon Jesus. So if Jesus just is the Holy Spirit in God's spirit in his entirety, if that's every bit of what God is, is, is in Christ and there's nothing else then. It makes no sense that when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Let me uh, find the passage here. I guess we could go to Mark one ten. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens were uh, being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Oh, so he's already the son of God, right? But, right, Luke says, you know, That he's, because of his conception, he's called the son of God. And here the spirit descends upon him like a dove. So that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not the same person. If there's a person difference here, then they're not the same person. Then the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. So you find that the spirit and him are not the same. They're not the same person. The Spirit's driving him into the wilderness, but him is a different person. We also see in the Gospel of John that Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. When um, when he leaves, he will send the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit's not already present with them. All right, making sure that's not an emergency call. Um, so let's see. Um, Jesus is talking about how he's going to leave. He's going to go to him who sent me which is the father. Okay, so Jesus and the father are different persons because he's going to go to the father. Um, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Well, the helper is the Holy Spirit. Clearly in John 16, the helper is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not with them. But wait, Jesus is with them. So Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, Can't possibly be. That would be a, a, a contradiction. So if I, will, if I go, I will send him to you. Now, in, in the book of Acts, we, we get the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, right? He's going to do this because they don't believe in me. So there's a he, me, two different persons concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, right? But wait. How is Jesus not, how is the spirit of truth not there? If Jesus just is the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay. Well, there's obviously different persons between Jesus and the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit isn't, and this is key. I'm actually doing a a, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit study this week. Um, so I'm gonna teach on who is the Holy Spirit. What is, you know, we'll talk about the personhood and the deity of the Spirit, and a bunch of other neat stuff. Um, that'll be this Sunday night at my church, as and Sunday morning, as well as Monday live. Um, but what we're getting here is that the the Holy Spirit is not just a name for God altogether, right? It's a name for the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is is, is the, the, um, the way in which I describe the third person of the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We have all three of them active at the baptism of Jesus. We have Jesus talking about um, the Holy Spirit as a different person than himself, although he then goes on to say other things like when the Holy Spirit's with us, he's with us because there's, there's obviously an intimate, unbreakable connection between the, the three persons of the Trinity because there's only one God. So I think that the Trinity um, provides us and the doctrine of, of the Trinity that, that the Spirit and the Logos are not the same person. That's actually the phrase I would use. They're not the same person or the same thing in every respect. Um, they're both, they're, they are God. I should say they are God, but they are not the same person. Um, this is why this is kind of forced on us with scripture. There's all these things that just don't make any sense unless we hold to the doctrine of a tripersonal God. I hope you find that helpful. Thank you guys for joining me. This has been 20 questions with Pastor Mike, my stream that just keeps getting longer and longer. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, that's about it. So I will see you guys on um, Monday at 1 p.m. That's the next time I plan on going live. And we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit in more detail. All right, take care.